And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. All right, I have one more announcement before I go into the episode. I know these can be super annoying, but this is not a paid advertisement. This is actually about one of my projects. I made a feature film called Fractals, and guess what? It is now available for streaming. Just visit my website, ericnorcross.com. Look for the movie Fractals, and there will be a list of platforms where you can stream it. Thanks. Welcome back to the podcast. I just wanted to let you know that this particular episode is serving as the official audio commentary for my feature film, Death and Life. Because the movie is not released on optical media, where you would normally find audio commentaries, I've decided to use my podcast as a mechanism to provide those commentaries. Death and Life is available for streaming on Amazon and 2 TV and a whole bunch of other platforms, which you can navigate to via my website ericnorcross.com and it's also available to watch for free on my youtube channel (laughs) so just look for the death and life playlist and you can watch it there i will let you know when i've started the movie that way you can sync it up if you so desire but anyway uh, i'm going to read some of the trivia that's available on the imdb page because i'm going to use them as a bouncing off point for talking about some of the stuff in this movie because i did make the movie uh, quite a few years ago, I kind of don't remember everything, uh, but I'm hoping that as I watch it, I'll, things will start to come up. But I'm going to try to keep this loosey-goosey and not tr- not struggle too much to perfect it, uh, and, and let's just power through it together, okay? So, I am pressing play now. So this is my movie, Death and Life. I produced it at the tail end of my time as an undergraduate student at SUNY Empire State College. And the lead actor in this movie isn't even an actor at all. He's a mixed media artist named Michael Bailey. Mike was also a student at Empire State College. That's how I had met him. And he was a really good sport. What had happened was the the, the project really started out as a continuance of several experimental short films that I produced in the spring of 2017. They were called Depression, Obscurité, Anxiété, and Fever, or Depression, Obscurity, Anxiety, Fever. When the test footage that I shot with Mike Bailey 
Well, so basically Mike was was like, well, I want to be in one of these. And I decided, you know what? I've already done four. I'll do a fifth one. And I ended up shooting some test footage with Mike in the living room of my apartment that was in line with those other four. But these, this was different. This stood out. And basically it ended up being this scene in the beginning where he's sitting in his living room talking to a sort of disembodied voice and he's lamenting the sodium vapor street lamp outside his window. That was our initial test footage and it was supposed to be like the fifth installment of this experimental film series but ultimately I really liked what we were doing and I wanted to keep doing it to see if we can't get a full movie out of this and so essentially (laughs) uh we kept going and he'd come back every couple of days and we'd shoot some more. And I think after the second or third day, I drew up an outline so that we could continue shooting through most of the summer. And I think once a week through June and July of 2017, we were shooting this movie. Now, this footage, this opening shot of the parking garage isn't actually in New York. It's at, it's in Portland, Maine. I shot it from a restaurant that Jan and I were dining at when I went back to visit my hometown that summer. Or maybe it was even the spring before. Because a, a lot of times what will happen is I'll go to a place and I'll just shoot a lot of random footage. Sometimes with the intention of just creating stock footage. But that parking garage, I really just kind of liked the look of it. You had all these cars stacked up on one another, and then below it, pedestrians were just going back and forth into the Casco Bay Lines ferry terminal. So I'm like, that's cool. I think I'll shoot that until the memory card runs dry. And I, I don't know how long the original raw footage was, but I shot that for a very long time with the camera that we shot this movie on, which was a an original first-generation Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera HD. And I shot in the Apple ProRes codec. This city footage, this footage of the great city at night, was shot from the East River of Manhattan. I basically went into Manhattan around 3 a.m. with my camera and a little tabletop tripod, and I walked up the pedestrian the pedestrian walkway along the East River from from the South Ferry all the way to Midtown and just shooting this footage. And most of the shots aren't even of Manhattan. Most of the shots are of Brooklyn or Queens because I didn't want it to be obviously New York. That, that was the thing with this particular movie. It couldn't have been obviously New York. I mean, you know it's New York. It's obviously New York, but it's there, there are no landmarks. You know, the skyline isn't distinctive. It, and, and this is an idea that I actually stole straight up from Jean-Luc Godard's Alphaville, where it's clearly there in Paris, but he just calls it another planet. And that's that. <laughs> and, and that's basically what I've done here. I just decided, you know what? It's New York, but it's the great city and the great city's located on a different planet. And most of the time you're looking at the great city, like these shots here, you're actually looking at the government housing projects. And I primarily use the projects on the lower east side near the off-ramp to the Brooklyn Bridge. But I also occasionally use the ones in Chelsea because we did a lot of shooting in the art galleries or near the art galleries. And so the projects were right there and so it made sense. But ultimately, because the movie is 
inspired by Jane Jacobs' book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, it made sense to focus on the government housing projects as the main visual for the great city. See, for years, I had wanted to do an art house interpretation of the philosophies that she talks about in that book. It's a 1961 book about how modern city building was essentially destroying communities. It was destroying neighborhoods. Like if you think about the government housing projects and how they're on these super blocks and they're designed to sort of push the city away, to push the street life away. And anybody who studies urbanism or, or the, your urban life, uh, urbanization, the, you know, you, you figure out real quick that Safety in a city doesn't come from police. It doesn't come from security guards. It, it comes from street life. The more active a sidewalk is, the more active a street is, the safer it is. And, and that was her argument in her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. Although the film evolved out of this initial approach, the title and some of the themes that underpin the overall story still allude to this. This shot where we were dumping pennies on Michael, he really wanted to enjoy it. And I think at first he did, but I did it so many times with so many pennies that he eventually got sick of it. I think it kind of hurt. Now, the communication device that he's talking to, which appears in other scenes and in other offices and apartments throughout the great city, this wasn't initially meant to be a communication device. Artist Mike Rader made that for me for another movie where it couldn't be used. It was meant to be a, a, a submersible that was supposed to be shot on a soundstage with like, we were going to fill a smoke, a room with smoke and we were going to make it look like it was underwater, like it was traversing underwater looking for a shipwreck or something. And it was going to, that was basically it. It was going to be a model of a submersible that we would then use visual effects to make it look like it was underwater. But that movie failed all to hell and I ended up not using it at all but I still had the prop lying around and a work of art from the great Mike Raiders so I said you know what we're going to use it in death and life and it's going to be the communication device for the great city so it's the same one in every scene we just I just tried to make it look like it's a different one in a different apartment you know they're all stocked they're all the same remember like in the 50s and 60s like if you look at footage of people's phones all the phones look the same it's kind of like that. It's just like, I, I, and I guess all the phones look the same today too. Like the, all the cell phones look exactly the same. So don't even have to go back to the mid 1900s to, for a reference. But yeah, and this is all just the test footage mixed with some of my walk along the East River. And so this, this first video footage that's in color is actually the original footage that I shot with a mini DV camcorder called the TRV 900. Now the TRV 900, what it belonged to my friend, Brandon, we'd shot uh, our films hero for a day on it. And when I first visited New York city in November of Oh two, to see if I wanted to live here, I brought that camera with me. And this was the footage I shot when I first woke up in New York. So when he's talking about first waking up in New York city, this is that footage. It was the actual first time I ever woke in New York City. I was staying at a bed and breakfast on the, I guess, 81st Street, on West 81st Street, called Jack and Judy's Bed and Breakfast. It was basically a townhouse where they converted the upper floors into a B&B. &B. And that's where that footage was shot from. 
And now we're back to the Chelsea projects. So before we were looking at the Lower East Side projects, now we're in Chelsea. And this is The Artist, played by Mike Bailey, going out for the day in the great city, which is perpetually gray and uninspiring. But he's trying. He's trying to find patterns. And we can talk about patterns once we get to that scene. But this was basically one of, of many, many days where Mike and I just went out and we walked around New York and we just shot random stuff. And that's how the production worked. We'd shoot random stuff. And then later I would write a voiceover so that when we reconnected, we would, we would record the voiceover for the previous shoot, but then shoot some more stuff. And that's how the summer rolled on with the production of Death and Life. It was very unofficial, very unscheduled, and we drafted it as we went. But it helps that I am a writer and that I already had a lot of ideas to draw from, a lot of thoughts on living in the city to draw from. And, you know, when you see a gate along a sidewalk, why not just rub your fingers along the side of it and film it in close up? It makes sense. He is trying to get in touch with why he moved to the city to begin with. He's trying to remember why he loved it, why he was obsessed with it, why he chose it, and he can't seem to find it because, as this movie conveys, living in the great city isn't what it's purported to be. It's a very gray place. And these are, of course, feelings that I was having then and feelings that have really kind of been solidified by this point. I, I do think that New York City... Uh, benefits from a really wonderful marketing machine, especially with films and TV shows all being set here and making life look a certain way here. A lot of people are duped into coming here, and I was one of them, and that's what these films are about. They're an honest, uh, I guess they're an honest sort of dissertation, so to speak, of what New York really is. It is not the great city. It's a better city than most, but it's got too many major issues, especially with housing and costs, that uh, there's no way this can ever be a great city, given the nature of things. However, I don't believe that that's the end. I think that everything in life is a work in progress, and that's what I was trying to find my way to with this project as well as with the with the next film fractals which is the sister film of this movie but um in in the context of the artist walking around the city trying to find inspiration he he's essentially trying to find his reason to stay and the reason he finds his way toward towards photographing patterns and later using those patterns in his spray paint work it's because that's essentially what mike bailey does as an artist or at least that's what he did as an artist in that moment and so i loved the idea of documenting mike's real world process for creating art and integrating it into the character so it's almost like where does the fiction end and the documentary begin where does the essay about New York begin and the science fiction aspect of it begin, you know, and it's just so layered with all of these different approaches and ideas and inspirations. And it's just <laughs> always at war with yourself. I love that bit of graffiti, always at war with yourself. That's so true. 
But yeah, the, yeah, there's his his first pattern. I think that we see him filming, and then the great, the pattern in the great. This is actually him doing his work, which I love, and also the rooftop documentation was also just him doing his work obviously he slowed down and took a bit of direction from me so i could get specific angles but that was a day that he was going to go up on the roof and spray paint and so i just showed up and we we shot it um, but i love this idea of you know i don't go in with a script i go in with an outline and i kind of have an idea of what i'm looking for but not really most of it will find in the moment and that's how we shot Death in Life with that small black magic gener first generation pocket camera. We shot an HD ProRes, as I said. And as I shot, I put the timeline together in Final Cut Pro. It was like a very early version of Final Cut Pro, like six point something on an old 2009 iMac. And it was the last film I made on that program before I upgraded my editing system. And what I would do is I would shoot a little bit, assemble it in the timeline, figure out what the voiceover was going to be. Then we'd meet up again on another day, shoot some more, record the voiceover. I'd drop the voiceover in and then assemble what we shot again and again and again. And then at some point in the mid to latter half of July, I shot all of the pickups I needed to complete all the different timelines. And I think it was something like seven different timelines. Because if you, if you look at the film... And you analyze the structure of it, you'll see that like it's in different sections. So the first section is basically the introduction where it's really dark and we're seeing the city from the East River and he's lamenting the yellow light outside his window. That's section one. Okay. Section two is when he's walking around the city. Section three, I guess, would be this sequence with the art store, which connects with... Um, the the bit where he goes around Chelsea gallery hopping, which we actually did. We went to New York City galleries, which I'll talk about when we get there. And so every section was assembled separately. And then only when it was all finalized that I bring the timelines together. And because it was such an old computer, I couldn't bring the timelines together in raw form. I had to render out a ProRes master of each timeline bring them back into a separate project file, and then splice them together. And so if you think about that, just from a sound mixing standpoint, it was an absolute fucking nightmare getting each section to balance with one another. But I did it. <laughs> I managed to somehow do it. I don't remember exactly what that workflow consisted of because I hadn't done it with such a big movie before, at least to the extent of perfection that I was going for with this. But yeah, I did all the sound design, the sound mix. They were all on separate timelines. I had no barometer for figuring out whether a timeline would go together. I think there were a few circumstances where I would bring in a section, realize that it was too loud or too low, but I would just adjust the volume on the rendered section rather than re-rendering it because, you know, if I, if I had gone back to the original timeline and re-rendered it, I would have been doing this forever. And let's face it, I was desperate to have a movie. I had just gone through my undergraduate program, which meant I hadn't made a movie in like three and a half years, and I really just wanted a movie. And so I powered through this thing, <laughs> and it worked. 
I, I, I honestly, I think it had had it had the runtime been any longer than the hour and six minutes that this thing is, I wouldn't have been able to render it. Like I really pushed my system hard for this one hour movie. But as far as the color grade goes, so it's not just a black and white film. This is a gray movie. I worked really hard to get the grays in this movie exactly the tone I needed it to be. Because I wasn't trying to emulate a stock. I wasn't trying to do anything like that. And I wasn't trying to cop out of doing a proper color grade. On the contrary, to the contrary, I actually worked harder on the on the black and white shading of this movie than I ever had on the color of any other movie I've done. And basically what I did from the start, and this all came from the experimentation I did with those first original four experimental films, is I realized that if I shoot in different white balances, uh, the grays will be different. So if I shoot with everything properly white balanced, it'll look like your typical black and white film. It'll be very boring. Everything will kind of bleed together and it'll be hard to watch. However, if I shoot with a white balance that's a little more cold as if it's the wrong film stock for what we're shooting and then I pop it to black and white it gives me a seedy tone that is the beginning of the type of gray that we're looking at I definitely took out some of the deep blacks in most of the footage added some deep blacks in certain shots where it was necessary but ultimately, having the wrong color grade, or at least more of a bluish, colder color, uh, white balance, and, and applying the grayscale look to that just made it exactly the type of grayscale I was looking for. And, and whenever I had to shoot pickups for this movie, I always had to make sure that I put the white balance back into the colder spectrum to make sure it matched. Because it would... I've d- I'd done a few pickup shots, like scenery shots, where the white balance was proper and it didn't fit into the movie. And you think it would because black and white is black and white, except that's not true. Black and white isn't black and white. <laughs> There's so many, so many ways to screw up a grayscale movie and not get it right or just to have it look boring and bland. And uh, that's something I was very aware of during this whole color grade process by the way this was the last movie that i color graded in apple color i don't know if some of you remember that program (laughs) but that that was part of the final cut studio 2 package back when i bought that whole thing it was final cut pro 6 uh it had a sound mixing program i forget the name of it and it had an Apple Color. It had Media Encoder. I think it had Media Encoder. It might have, might have not been called that. Or no, it was called Compressor. They have a new version of Compressor now, which they sell separately. But if you can hear my cat Hermes meowing to get out the door. So we're on the rooftop now. This is a rooftop in Harlem. This was the apartment building where Mike was living at the time. He has since moved on from New York. He moved to Florida shortly after we made this movie. But this is how this is his setup. This is exactly how he sets up his spray painting gear <laughs> whenever he's on the roof doing this. 
And all the designs that he's doing were engineered out of some of the patterns that he found while walking around New York City. So, again, I love that the sort of amalgamation of science fiction, essay, art house, pseudo adaptation, because you can't really adapt the book that inspired me, but I can certainly embrace the philosophies of the book. And this is what we get. We get a, an art house feature film called Death and Life. <laughs> uh, of course, right now, the film is distributed as Eric Norcross's Death and Life uh, because initially when I released the movie, I did it myself just straight to Amazon. You know, I, I don't know if you know this, but you can upload movies to Amazon and they'll release them as long as you're legally allowed to do that. But uh, after a while, they took it down and said, we don't feel like our audiences are having a good time with your movie based on their viewing habits when they start watching it. So we're taking it down, which means, which I took that to mean that a lot of people start watching it and then they shut it off like right away. <laughs> and Amazon doesn't like that. So I had a hard time getting it back up until I started working with an aggregator and that aggregator put it back up for me, but they had to put it up under the title Eric Norcross's Death and Life. For some reason, I do not remember why, but um, yeah, it, it's finally up and available now. And even if it got removed from Amazon, it wouldn't matter at this point because it's up on so many other platforms now as well as YouTube. And if you're listening to this podcast through YouTube, you're probably also watching the movie because I'm going to be syncing it up with the movie. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we popped to color as soon as he's guilt, he falls into his creative zone. And the idea with this is basically just to say, hey, when a creative is doing his thing and, or their thing and they're creating and they're in their zone, doesn't matter how hard life is. It doesn't matter their surroundings or their environment. Uh, everything looks better Life looks better when you're doing what you're meant to do. And this is like drawn from my own personal feelings where like no matter how hard life has gotten, you know, ever since moving to New York in 2003, whenever I was engaged in a creative project, the difficulty of living mattered a lot less. Like my first New York film was called The Long Island Project. It was a political satire shot on mini DV. Silly, silly movie, not particularly well made. That was, that was an era where I wasn't making a lot of money. I wasn't making nearly enough money to survive. I was eating a lot of ramen. Uh, and somehow my colleagues at the retail store I was working at and I managed to cobble together a production over the course of the summer of 2005. And I don't have a lot of memories of the poverty. I don't have a lot of memories of the lack of meals. Uh, I know that I had a lack of meals. I know that I did not eat healthy and I know that my stomach rumbled a lot. But the memories I do have are actually being creative and collaborating with people from work to make that movie. And so that's what that's why I chose to depict his process this way because as a character he forgets how miserable the city is when he's creating. Everything pops to color when he's in his creative zone. And so that's that's why I depict it that way. Uh, not to be gimmicky or <laughs> artsy-fartsy about it. It's just is what it is. Um, 
That's how I feel when I am creating. And it's also how I felt when I was creating this movie with him because I hadn't made a movie for, for the previous three years while I was in my undergrad. You know, I went back to school late in life to revisit my education. So from the age of 34 to the age of 38, I was in undergrad and MFA studies back to back. So between my undergrad and my MFA, uh, we made this movie together. And it felt exactly like this, like the world popped to color all of a sudden because, and also this is when I realized this is what I was meant to do. Uh, making films was always a struggle for me as a creative. I always found it difficult to find collaborators and equipment and to really get projects going. And so one of the things I did when I went back to school is I said, well, you know what, I'm not going to make films while I'm here, at least in my undergrad. And if by the time I'm done with my undergrad, I want to make a movie, then I know that I'm supposed to be making movies. Even if I'm not doing it professionally or with the blessings of an industry, I know that if I still want to do it, that I should keep doing it. And so I finished my undergraduate studies. We started making this movie. As a matter of fact, we were shooting in the Chelsea gallery scene, which we'll get to soon. We were shooting in the Chelsea galleries the day of, of my graduation, the day I was supposed to walk. And so we went down, we went to Chelsea. I had my graduation gown in a backpack. I had the camera and he had his outfit and we were shooting in the art galleries. And then when it came time, we walked up to Lincoln Center where I graduated from college. <laughs> and I put on my gown I graduated from Avery Fisher Hall, which has now, I, well, even then it was no longer Avery Fisher Hall. I think they renamed it David Geffen Hall. But I walked the stage at Avery Fisher Hall. And then we left and we did some night shooting and then we departed again. And then we met the following week to finish the movie. <laughs> and so it's sort of like, wow. We, you know, it was part of our life. We, we did it, then we did the thing that we're supposed to do with our, our regular life, and then we went back to shooting, and so on and so forth. This whole idea of asking a question only to have the system go into intimidation mode was just a spur-of-the-moment idea. I think it was inspired by this idea that our phones are programmed to, you know, if you say, the, if you say certain keywords over the phone, that... There's this rumor that servers underneath Fort Meade will start recording your conversation. So if you were to say something like bomb or, or terrorist attack or Pentagon or something like that, that servers in Fort Meade will, will automatically start recording your conversation and red flag it for analysis. It's a conspiracy theory rooted in that movie, Enemy of the State. So I said, well, what if he asked the wrong question? What would his communication system do? And that's just something that we came up with and made it work in editing by flipping the image red, part of the whole art house approach to telling the, telling the story. So on the art gallery scene, you'll notice there is ink art covering all the actual art. Life is fucking beautiful. Um, a lot of the art is copyrighted, right? When you go to these galleries, you're technically not supposed to film in them, but also you can't photograph other people's art and put it in a movie that is going to possibly generate a profit. Not that I've ever profited off these art house movies before, but 
I always kind of want to. So what I decided to do was don't ever show these this artwork in a wide lens. Don't ever show it so that it can be recognized. And if it can be recognized, I layer in my own artwork over it. Some of it is similar to the art that was being viewed, but some of it is completely different. And then what I would do is, is create a voiceover that goes along with not necessarily the art he was looking at, but the art that would be put over it. And so that's, that's how that happened. <laughs> but anyway, all those art gallery scenes, those were shot the day I graduated from college, at least my undergrad. And so what happened though is through August, I tightened up the film, the August of 2017, I mean, I tightened up the film, uh, and I got, I, I, I was preparing for my MFA program because I, I matriculated from my BA to my MFA immediately. And so by the end of August, the film was completely done. And it was only just a matter of getting a master submitted to film festivals. And I did a lot of that. Um, probably the end of my first term in my MFA program, which was that autumn, autumn of 2017. And the reason it took so long was because of the music factor. Uh, because I finished the movie, it doesn't mean that it's actually finished. So when I talk about finishing the movie at the end of August, it's actually picture locking it and getting the sound where it needs to be sans music. And so what I do is I then send it off to a musician. In this case, it was a woman named Lyndall Descant, who I've become very good friends with and who's gone on to score some of my other projects. And I've gone on to make many music videos for her. Um, but this was our first collaboration together. And the first time I met her was on this. And it was basically a trade. I said, well, if you score this movie, I'll do a music video for you. And I'll also shoot some just straight up regular videos of you performing. And she took me up on the offer. <laughs> and um, it took her several months to score the movie. Because at first, when I sent her the, the movie around the end of August, she was like, okay, I'll get to it. And then a couple weeks later, I didn't hear from her. And I'm like, how's it going? And she goes, oh, I'm not, I haven't found my mojo yet. I'm like, what's that mean? <laughs> I was kind of annoyed and worried. Like, should I, should I be looking for someone else? And then like around, I think around the end of September or early October, she started sending me ideas and I said, okay, yeah, this is, this is just weird enough to work. And this is like the first time where I pursued a movie score that wasn't a movie score like this like usually when i'm looking for somebody to score a movie i'm looking for formula i'm looking for something that's dramatic that will draw emotion but with this i wanted something a little more experimental and lindell just happens to be a jazz musician or i would say avant-garde jazz musician to a certain extent so i said well just the weird one of the things i found in making this movie lindell is the where do we get the better off this movie will be. And so she took that as her direction and she made the best possible music that could go with this movie. And it's one of my favorite scores to date. Her, her, her score for fractals is as well, but I'll talk about that in a future commentary for fractals. But yeah, I, I mean, imagine if I tried syncing up a, like a traditional movie score with this movie, it just would not work. Oh, oh, this scene that we're watching where I'm in a bike helmet talking about like the God form and the paintbrush and all that. That was actually 
almost a verbatim conversation I had with Mike. At one point, we'd gone out to Governor's Island. We weren't filming out there, but we were just fucking around, taking photos and biking. And because he, I don't think he had been out to Governor's Island. And so, on the ferry back, he was talking about the God form, and this, it, that was it was being discussed in this book that he was reading. And I said, I love that. I think we should integrate that into the movie. And so, I came up with this weird character named Ezzy, who's that's basically the name I had when I was a teenager back in my hometown. And Ezzy is this this weird guy that randomly approaches him at his work desk and lectures him about random shit that he doesn't even ask about. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just it's all about like weird and finding weird and becoming comfortable with weird. Did you notice what what Mike does as his day job? <laughs> he counts beans. He's a bean counter. He was literally counting dried beans. It was a bag of expired beans that I had in my cupboard. I'm like, well, everybody's going to pay the bills and your art isn't paying the bills. So you're going to be a bean counter as part of your day job. And so that's why he was just counting beans. He, and he had a little knife sharpener that he was using to count the beans. Anyway, this, this green color shot of the lawn. This is actually a tract of public land in Hatfield, Massachusetts. Uh, Jan and I were visiting her family in the Berkshires and I saw this guy mowing this huge soccer field and I really liked the way the trees looked, how thin the trunks were and I framed it up and I just filmed it, much in the same way that I filmed the parking garage. It was probably the same season that I shot the two. So, but I popped this to color and I made it a little more green than the raw footage was supposed to be. And I got rid of a little bit of the blue in the sky because I didn't want it to look comfortable. I didn't want it to look alluring because the idea of you know, the American dream and having a patch of green that's yours. I think that's a bit of a fraud. And that's sort of what I was working towards with that. I don't know if I 100% achieved it, but that's definitely something that I was working towards with that section of the movie. The American dream is bullshit. That not everybody needs or would be happy with a patch of grass. Lawns can be very difficult to maintain. Believe me, I know I used to mow lawns as a profession in my younger and more vulnerable years, as F. Scott Fitzgerald would say. Yep, this is again one of those improvised scenes that we came across while walking around Chelsea. There was an open gate to a grassy area, and we were sure as shit that that was a mistake. And I'm like, well, that's going to be in the movie too, because having access to a patch of green all to yourself, well, that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> Not in the great city. Again, footage of my hometown in Long Island, Maine. Casco Bay in the Gulf of Maine. That's where I grew up. And the footage was shot on mini-DV probably the year before I left for New York. And then I flashed to more modern footage that I shot on a visit. And I believe this was the same visit where I shot that parking garage in the beginning. Because some of this is of Portland, Maine, which is where that parking garage was. And what I'm talking about here is how the, the longer I'm away from my hometown, the more 
it stays in my mind, stays on my mind. Even though I was desperate to get out then, even though I had nothing nice to say about it then, as the years go on, I start remembering it in vivid color. I start remembering a false sort of positive aspect to it. Like, I know that if I were to go back now, I would be super lonely. I would feel out of place. But there's some part of me that always wants to. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the illusion of distance and time and how it creates a false uh, idea as it concerns the place from where you came. Anyway, it's something that I'm still working towards in my writing. So I didn't quite perfect it with this, but that's sort of the idea. And also there's a personal aspect to it too, where he talks about the people who are no longer in his life. And of course, when he's talking about that, uh, I'm showing aspects of my grandmother's house and all this footage was shot uh, around the time that she was put into a nursing home. And so she was no longer living in that house, uh, but she hadn't quite died yet. But by the time I made the movie, she had died. And so a lot of those feelings were put into that voiceover. Hence the final shot of that sequence being a fairy breaking away from the pier and going into the darkness as if it's carrying her away. Anyway, that's it that's a that's a moment where I'm not really going for anything specific. I'm just finding my feelings through the creative process and that's what I came up with. That's what or what I ended up with. Again, a lot of my creative content is like this it, whether it's a movie sometimes even a podcast episode obviously a work of literature i'm usually just i'm trying to find something that i don't know what i'm trying to find and the whatever's created is a byproduct or a by result of that process and that sequence is the perfect example of that and i might actually extract that and reiterate these points for just a standalone video because I actually think that's kind of a groundbreaking realization in this very moment. I came so. because I'd like to take a little off the top. This is me now skimming money from the budget. <laughs> so he's the bean counter and I'm just taking a handful of beans for myself because I am not a good employee. <laughs> Again, improvising just random things and making it work in the edit. There were some things that didn't work, but I don't recall what they are. Most of what we shot ended up in the movie. And this is a use of stock footage. So I bought like a bunch of stock footage years ago, but I never really used them much except for a couple of short films that I made. So I'm like, you know what? I have like an unlimited license for this footage. So why don't I just come up with a sequence where I can just use some of this and we can explore the planet where he lives. And so the idea is we're exploring the planet and the reason some of it is upside down is really one to hide the fact that it's just random stock footage and it doesn't match the movie at all. But also because I like the idea of being on a different planet and we're going around it so fast that whatever's on the lower hemisphere appears upside down. And then when you're in the upper hemisphere, or like where the great city is supposed to be, or the northern hemisphere, I should say, uh, then everything 
feels right side up. And I'm sort of playing on this idea that there's an up and down with a planet. Of course, we all know that with any planet, there's no up and down, really. Like North and South hemispheres are bullshit. But what if you were to go the, around the world really, really fast, like at the speed of light? At some point, you're going to be, it's going to appear upside down. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> you tell me. Send me a message through my website and let me know I'm an idiot. <laughs> this is a piece of art that's, this is the only piece of art that's not part of his natural process. I said, how much spray paint are you willing to waste for this movie? He's like, oh, let's, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, start with just put the thing really close and just spray it hard so it starts dripping and then slowly bring it across and start at the bottom of the canvas. And he did. And I loved the way it dripped. And he loved the way it dripped. And I said, now get a different color and layer it over. And that's how he created that. It was at my explicit instructions to do this. And I wish he had given it to me. I was really hoping he would give it to me, but he kept it for himself. It's such a wonderful piece of art. I told him he should hang it sideways so it looks like everything is dripping sideways. But I don't know what he ended up doing with it. So this is Jan. Jan is my girlfriend and soon-to-be mother of my child. At least at the time I'm recording this, uh, she is still pregnant. But eventually, sooner, very soon, she's going to give birth to my firstborn child, a daughter. But this was back in 2017, so we're nowhere near that area or this area yet. <laughs> but Jan was a really good sport with this because I was really stressed out during the shoot. And I'm not going to talk about why I was stressed out, but basically, um, well, I guess, you know what? I will. I had a hard time trusting the process. I think that's actually really important. Because it was so experimental, because I came off, at least to, I felt like I came off like I didn't know what I was doing, like I didn't know what direction I was going in, because it was so experimental that I felt like Mike wasn't going to keep coming, that Mike wasn't going to keep showing up. And obviously it was all in my head because he kept showing up anyway, but I was so afraid he was going to see right through me and stop showing up that I wasn't going to be able to finish the project. So I was really stressed out about it. But she was a really good sport in helping me get through that stress and ultimately playing this character, Jane, who's obviously very loosely inspired by Jane Jacobs in that she knows exactly what he's starting to see in terms of the patterns of the city not being effective for what the city is supposed to be for. Anyway. Jan um, had a very traditional scene with very traditional dialogue, and she completely rewrote her. Well, what happened was we shot her scene, and it was very traditional, and it didn't work. It would have worked in any other movie except for this one. So I was racking my brain trying to figure out why it didn't work. What's, is there another way I can convey all of this information? And what she decided to do was embrace this rule that I was discovering, but hadn't remembered, and that the weirder you get, the better it is. And so she rewrote all of her dialogue one week after shooting Michael's coverage of her scene. And then after trying to assemble the scene between the two, I realized that the tone of the original scripted dialogue wasn't working for the project. Keeping Michael's coverage, Jan and I reshot her side with all new material. So whenever you see her talking, Mike isn't even there. Mike, when, when you see Mike, he's actually talking to Jan, who's saying completely different dialogue in a completely different way. She, and 
on his angle, she's actually doing a traditional acting approach with, with the dialogue. But it just didn't work. And so we reshot her side separately. It was just us two. Um, the only exception was that she had to retain the core information she provides Michael's character. That way they can be cut together. But each piece of her scene was edited into the timeline the moment it was shot. And thus, the scene was completed the same day the pickups were shot. The film was picture-locked that same week. So this was, like, probably the last thing that I did. I'm reading, by the way. I'm reading my own trivia about it. But uh, I, it's, it's starting to come back to me now. So, yeah, this was, like, among the very last things that had to be shot when I dropped it into the timeline. I'm now remembering that I was so depressed about it. And so she retooled exactly what she was going to do and how she was going to do it and so just kind of the way she's delivering the lines and the wording she chose and all that and the the, the glass of wine like that's all added in to make it weird and as i've been saying in this the weirder i got the better it worked because when you start off weird if you try to transition a piece into something more traditional it it, it it stands out as not belonging. Like, it just doesn't work. And so, yeah, we shot Jan's side, I think the, the day I after I assembled it and was just depressed about it. So, after we shot it, I dropped her scene into the timeline, reassembled it, it worked, and that was that. That's how we did that. And we're, we now go to footage supplied by the taxpayers of the United States <laughs> NASA footage thank you very much and this is of course just like I know it's kind of funny but like I, I really like this this approach where I just shoot through cardboard right T looking at him I'm just shooting through a hole in cardboard and then when we're looking out his window it's basically just a piece of styrofoam that uh, our cooking pot came in we bought one of those electric like Instapots, but not Instapot. It's like a different brand. And it came in like this styrofoam. And so one of them looked like a porthole. So I just spray painted it uh, with bets of black and silver. And I put the porthole against a computer screen with NASA footage playing on the computer screen. And I had Mike put his face very close as if he's looking through the porthole. And we just filmed it. And it looked like when you cut the two angles together, I'm like, this passes the test of being a weird science fiction movie. Like, <laughs> Look at that. It looks like he's in a ship. At least I think it looks like he's in a ship. And the stars are going by. and He's in hyperspace or light speed or something. But no, if you were to pull out, you would see um, that we're just in my apartment. There's actually a behind-the-scenes shot of us filming that. You can see the whole setup. It's literally just a bunch of cardboard everywhere blocking the different ambient light and whatnot. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really not the most inventive way, but it's it got the job done. And it was the first time I ever did something like that. I know that like this is the type of filmmaking you would see somebody in high school do, but... <laughs> The fact that I made it in my late 30s and was super exhilarated having achieved it, having come up with it on my own. I don't know. I'm really proud of that. Like, <laughs> it goes against the the grain of what I would instinctively want to do, which is essentially 
build a, a real set piece of the inside of a spaceship, get a green screen, get effects people to help me. But that would have defeated the whole purpose of the project, which is just to make an art house film with me, Mike and Jan together, working together, finding new and outside the box ways, or not even new ways, because this is ancient approach, but outside the box ways that I hadn't come up with before. So, and then his shuttle taking him down to the planet uh, is of course just the Staten Island ferry. <laughs> and you know, if you go to the middle of the ferry, at least one of the ferries, or I think the two, two or three of the ferries, uh, this is sort of the two, th the twenty aughts edition of the ferry. They've got this thing in the middle where you, it's like a circle, circular thing. I actually don't know what it's for, but I'm like, just put your hands on it, and I'll shake the camera, and that's you, landing. And then we'll we'll film you disembarking. And so when he disembarks the shuttle to the planet, he's really just disembarking the Staten Island ferry in St. George, Staten Island. <laughs> I liked, I, I've always loved uh, this sort of gritty look of the St. George Ferry Terminal. When you, when you get off the ferry at the lower deck, it's so gritty looking and it's so dark. And then as you exit to the sidewalk, you're walking under an overpass. See right there, you're walking under an overpass, but there's also a street to your left. And then there's these large pylons holding up the overpass and these pipes that are draining, that are drawing drainage from the overpass, uh, and I don't know. I just love the industrial like nature of it. It really adds to this whole idea. Really, is this city so great? Look at how like basic this is. <laughs> then they don't even make an effort to make it welcoming, and I like that. But also, as a filmmaker, that is way more fun to shoot than something that's clean cut. Just to be honest, like just like I love reading Bukowski and Celine and words that aren't clean <laughs> i love footage that isn't quite clean uh, and so a lot of the locations that i was drawn to with this particular project look like that it, it gives me that seediness that outskirts of town look but i'm spinning it here as like oh that was his welcoming party like when you're coming from earth to the great city <laughs> That's what you see for the first time. Now, was it really worth the trip? Well, he's going to have to stay a little while to figure it out. But ultimately, I don't know. Again, we're back on the east side. I love the architecture of the east side. It's so, like, brutalist. This is where, like, uh, I introduced Michael to the concept of brutalism and brutalist architecture. <laughs> he hadn't heard the term before, but... After I showed him some examples around town, he's like, oh, this is very utilitarian. I think I like it because <laughs> he's very, a, a, very much a utilitarian type of person. So not only did I introduce him to the term, but he kind of realized that that might just might be his favorite form of architecture, brutalist architecture. <laughs> and then we're back to the scene with Jane or Jan, Jane played by Jan and, uh, you look in her reflection you'll see he's not actually there <laughs> but that's okay we're not going for perfection in the in a certain sense we're going for perfection in another sense and that elusive sense it's an elusive sense of perfection but not the traditional profession that one would expect with a feature film 
that's my defense of some of the inconsistencies. Some some of it matters, but most of it will not. This is just like me messing around with editing and him flashing out of existence. <sighs> Decide for yourself what it means. Uh, I just loved the idea. I love the image. I think there there is something psychological going on with him in this moment. I didn't know how to convey it, and I don't 100% quite know what it is, but I know just from a story standpoint, it is there, especially after his conversation with Jane. And so I just want the artist to have this moment of feeling like reality is collapsing in on itself and he's flashing out of it. And maybe that's for the best. Maybe he needs that break or something. I don't know. But... Uh, or maybe I just wanted to do the editing exercise because it looked cool. Whatever. Um, a lot of the footage that you're looking at now was shot from the Metro North Railroad in the Bronx. And I was going up to Sarah Lawrence College in August. I believe that's, yeah, it must have been August because I was going to deal with, you know, setting up myself in the MFA program, getting work in the AV office. My first term there, I worked in the audiovisual office at Sarah Lawrence. And I'm pretty sure this footage was from that trip because I did bring the camera on that trip. And I decided to integrate it into the project as him going to meet the city planner. Because I like the idea of the city planner not actually living in the city. I like the idea of the city planner living on an island separate from the city having no stake in whether the city survives or not. So he makes this huge trek out of the city. And then he, he makes this walk from the train across another bridge to an island in a river, as he says. And of course, that island in the river is um, Randall's Island in New York. And there's significance with that because the death and life of great American cities and the power broker or the story of Robert Moses are sort of sister books of one another. Like if you're going to read one, you should read both. Uh, and Robert Moses and Randall's Island are like simpatico. The stories are simpatico. Uh, the Triborough Bridge is on that island. And so that's central to the Robert Moses story and the amount of money that came through Randall's Island for uh, his his empire, so to speak, sort of what I was what I was alluding to here. Um, I didn't quite prepare myself to talk about that in this moment, though, so I'm going to stop talking about it. But he is definitely going to that underpass or that overpass on Randall's Island for that specific tie-in, that power broker tie-in. Uh, so if you know your New York City history and you've read both of those books, you can you can just figure out for yourself how this location ties in and how they go together. But that's also sort of, well, you know what? It, it, it really just comes down to just the level of money Robert Moses brought in through the tolls of the Triborough Bridge. And that's what this visual is right here, where the money just keeps coming in. Those are tolls being paid to the city planner <laughs> for for driving on those overpasses. And it's all taken, the, all that imagery is taken from descriptions in the power broker, basically. Um, and there's our city planner, played by John Mark McDonald, 
who is a wonderful playwright. Again, met him at Empire State College in my undergrad. We all knew each other. And this was sort of my my movie that I made with some of the people from Empire State College, like the ones that I ended, that ended up being, becoming really good friends with. But he's a really good playwright. Um, I went to an off-Broadway show that he did, and I expect many great things from him. But uh, he was a really good sport. We shot this in the basement of my apartment building, which where I've shot so many things at this point. Uh, fractals, most notably. Like, the wall behind him is actually the wall in Fractals where the black hole grows in Artie's apartment. I'll be doing that commentary next. But, yeah, when I want seedy, dark, dungeony footage, I just go down to the basement of this building, which I won't be able to much longer because I don't think we're going to be here much longer. But it was nice to have access to it as a, a developing filmmaker who was searching for his voice in art house cinema, <laughs> to have access to a seedy New York City townhouse basement. And minimal lighting. I think that I I didn't even have professional lights in this era. I just had light bulbs. And so we plugged some light bulbs in and I would just put it really close to their, their faces to give just enough light for proper exposure. And even, even though it wasn't really that proper, I think I was underexposed quite extensively and I did have to bring it up quite, quite a bit with Apple Color. But... If you notice, the city planner has the same communication device <laughs> as the artist, as Mike Bailey. I call them the city planner, the artist, by their their titles, by their positions, by how they identify, because I didn't want to waste a lot of time with names. Uh, names aren't that important in a lot of the work that I do in this genre, in this medium. Positions in society are important. And so I wanted to emphasize that. The only person I give a name to is Jane, and that's really just to honor uh, one of my main inspirations, The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. But other than that, there aren't really names. Of course I named myself Ezzy. Why wouldn't I name myself Ezzy? But I also didn't have a position in society. And I don't identify Jane as having a position in society, so whatever. Um, but even in Fractals... Uh, the lead character is RT, Artie, artist, you know? So I just call him Artie. Because when you're casting actors, uh, they prefer to have actual names for their characters because it looks good on their resume. So my artist in Fractals, I'm just, I resign him to Artie. <laughs> but uh, this was an experiment, the scene with the mice. This, that was an experiment with animation that I did. I'm not, I have like zero patience. So animation or stop motion, which I guess technically that falls more to, more into the stop motion category. Very, very brief experiment. It took me about 20 minutes to do. It was 20 exhausting, grueling minutes. I don't have the patience for that. So after I shot it, I'm like, I will figure out how to use it somewhere. I don't know where. And I ended up just using it in this scene to show what a dick the city planner is and how the city planner looks at all the residents of the city where he doesn't even live, where he doesn't function. And uh, yeah, that's it. I never did a stop motion again after that uh, because it fucking sucks. 
I did something close to it with the black hole and fractals, but not nothing near that intense. <laughs> so it's, I, I, you know what? I wasn't born for it. The, the, the patience just doesn't exist. Anyway, this is the most dramatic scene <laughs> ever, and it's so ridiculous. This is the one scene I hate because it's just like it's not weird enough. Actually, this is actually a great example of me talking about why weird is important. This isn't weird enough. And me integrating the change continuously coming in from the tolls was an attempt to keep it weird but and to bring up the drama. But ultimately, this level of drama, this level of intensity, it does not belong in a film like this at all. But um, what was I going to do? I needed an ending. And, I, and by the time I shot and edited this, I don't think I was getting Mike back. I think this was their both of their last days. And so I just lived with it. I made it work. I cut out a lot of stuff. I really trimmed it down as much as possible. Uh, I don't know what I'd do differently, though. I didn't really, I haven't really thought about it, but here we go. The final moments of the movie where he realizes that he has become the city planner by mistake he accidentally took the guy's job by forcing him to resign and uh, that was just kind of a weird thing where like it's kind of rooted in this this weird law in New York where like if and, and I think Jan talks about it in her scene where if they offer you anything don't take it. If they offer to plant a tree in your neighborhood, don't accept because by accepting a tree, you inadvertently accept any change they want to bring to your neighborhood. And this is something that's discussed in the power broker as well. And so I said, well, what if there was a scene where he, with the same silly logic, he accidentally becomes the city planner. Uh, and so it's really just a, commentary on the fucked up logic that cities will use to destroy neighborhoods because uh, that is a real thing in new york like if you live in a dilapidated neighborhood and the city says well why don't we plant a tree you're and you say yes you're also saying yes to everything else that you don't want it's a weird weird thing with new york and really any city for that matter anyway that's my movie death and life i hope you enjoyed it Again, the, the, the movie was scored by Lyndall Descant, and there was no professional crew. I was the only professional filmmaker working on this. Everybody else was either a mixed media, media artist or a playwright or just not in the industry at all. Thank you, everybody, and I will see you for my commentary for Fractals, which will be the next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.